0: Welcome to Rails with Jason. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more Rails tips and advice, head over to codewithjason.com, where I keep all my Rails articles and videos. Now, on to the episode. Hi there, today I'm here with Chad Pytel, developer and CEO at ThoughtBot. Chad, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So today we're going to talk about code quality and like assessing the code quality of an application and stuff like that. I reached out to you, Chad, because I heard about your code audit service that you're now offering at at ThoughtBot, and I thought that was interesting and might make a good thing for us to discuss. But I'm getting ahead of myself Before we get into that stuff, Chad, can you give us a little bit of an intro and tell us about yourself and about
1: ThoughtBot? Yeah, so I started ThoughtBot almost 17 years ago. Um, ThoughtBot was the first um, consulting company in the world to switch to Ruby on Rails back in 2005. i have been using Rails since the 0.13 was the first version of Rails that I used. Wow. Um, Over the years... um, you know, I've personally, I, I wrote Rails Anti-Patterns um, and a, pro, a book about active record. And ThoughtBot are the creators of Factory Bot, Paperclip. Uh, we created Airbrake or HopToad way back. Um, that's how a lot of people in the Rails community know us. Um, what we do is we help, we're a design and development company and we help uh, new companies or, or new people bring new ideas um, to life, or to improve existing products. And so in creation of new products and new teams, and in um, working on existing products, we see a lot of uh, different scenarios and different teams. And that's where the code audit service came out of, because um, we would often get people coming to us and saying, you know, you guys... You all know what you're doing with Rails, and we're having this problem. Whether you know it could be a slow test suite or performance problems, or oh no, we haven't upgraded Rails um, since version two. Uh, what are we going to do? Like all sorts of problems, and people would come to us, and so the code audit service, something that we extracted out of our work as a you know bite size, either one week or two to four week. Um, process of really getting a handle and and doing an audit and providing recommendations about how to move forward.
0: And let me ask you, maybe just for a little bit of context, what kinds of things do do clients tend to come to you with? And I know you just answered that question partially, yeah. but um, what kind of organizations come to you? Is it is it startups or like established businesses, brick and mortar businesses? or maybe it's all over the map. And then are they coming to you with new product needs or they want maintenance on existing products? And my guess is that the answer for both of those is just like everything sometimes, but what what kind of clients do you have?
1: Well, taking a step back from the code audit in particular, about 60% of the work that we do is helping build the first design and build the first version of a product. And that will run the gamut from working with an individual founder to a much much larger company, you know that wants to do something new. And we help them go. We start with a product design, a one week product design sprint, where we very rapidly refine and validate the idea to reduce risk, and then build and launch the first version to the first users within twelve weeks.
0: Got it. That's the
1: majority of what we do, and then we go on to help. Improve that product, and usually build a team around it that's going to replace us, either a team of in-house people or um, helping them hire new people. So that's sixty percent of what we do is going from concept to launch of a new idea. The other forty percent is improving existing product, and so um, being having the deep experience with Rails that we have, that's a lot of the companies. So a lot of the companies who have built in Rails, Rails is great, but there comes a point in the cycle where for some reason you are having a challenge and it doesn't even need to be a a technology challenge. It can be a people challenge or a team challenge. Like we're growing really rapidly and we can't hire enough senior people fast enough. Let's bring in ThoughtBot to help us. That could be like, there's nothing inherently wrong with your product or the code you've written or anything. It's just, you can't move fast enough. And so you might bring on us to help with that. And so that's the other 40% of what we do scaling team or product and performance and that kind of stuff.
0: Got it. Okay. Well with that, maybe let's zoom in a little bit on the code mm-hmm. audit stuff. I'm looking at your code audit page right now on thoughtbot.com and I'm looking at the, there's some bullet points here. There's like a what we mm-hmm. review section under code. I see quality at the source level, test coverage, code organization, and a number of other things. Yeah. Um and this first one is is interesting cuz it's like a total huge can of worms quality at the source level that could yeah. mean all kinds of different things to different people <clears throat> what does that mean
1: to you So there the way I look at that is a couple different levels um one is like are the 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 co- the, the the complexity of the code that you're writing so there's tools like like Flog and Reek, which will, you know, sort of give you scores about the complexity uh, of your code. That's at the base level what you might think about when you think about quality at the at the code level. And then one level up from that, you think about how the different components in your system are architected and how they're put together, and you know whether whether that's working well for um, the the software that you're building. Got so it. those are the two different levels that I would think about personally and that we look at in the when we're doing a code audit around you know code quality.
0: okay. And bear with me as I maybe get yeah. a little bit philosophical for a second. <laughs> but when you think about like good code versus bad code, I have my own answer to this, but I'm curious about your thoughts. what What does that term to me mean to you? when you think about this code is good versus this code is bad, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, um, so I, I think about it in two, two things. The first is, is it easy to understand? Um, so so that will mean, you know, is it easy for other people to understand? and And other people can include you three weeks from now or tomorrow <laughs> when you come back to the code Can you understand it? And can other people understand it? And then the second is, how easy is it to change? So those two things, um, if you can increase understandability and increase the ability for the code to change, that is um, good, clean code.
0: Well, Chad, I can tell that you're an extremely... Smart person with excellent taste because <laughs> your your answer to that question is exactly the same as mine. Awesome. Um, and anybody who agrees with me must be pretty smart.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, those two things. Is the code easy to understand and is it easy to work with? I, like, I sat down and I just thought about that question for a long time one day. Like, what is mm-hmm. good code? And as far as I can think, those two things are the only things that matter. You can think of other things that arguably matter but then right. arguably those things are just subcategories in service of those two things.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um okay.
1: We could so, talk about not a lot. not to not, mm-hmm. not, not so I I, <laughs> I I just wanna get so I don't believe that anyone sits down at their keyboard and says, I'm going to write bad code today. <laughs> like Unless you're in some sort of like bad code competition uh, and you're doing it for the sake of mm-hmm. specifically doing that. So that's that's a, an important factor, I think, in our work and just like as part of this philosophical question, which is, OK, if that's true and no one actively sits down and says, like, I'm going to write bad code, then why does it happen?
0: yeah. That's a great question, and uh, I, I suspect that you have a follow up to that. But I'll just <laughs> chime in. I'll chime yeah. in with a thought of mine, which is that in my experience, a lot of the time, bad code doesn't get written. Bad code evolves into being over time. Like there's mm-hmm. maybe a method starts off tidy on day one, and then a month later, somebody adds something to it, and it doesn't right. make it that much worse. And then. A month later somebody else adds something to it, makes it a little bit worse, and then like a couple years later you look at this method and you're like, Who wrote this thing? This is terrible. Right. Well, nobody right. wrote that method. It just came to right. be that way over many small changes. That's right.
1: Yeah. So it's it's the digression away from easy to understand and easy to change over time, not necessarily like the first time that code is touched, it was considered bad. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah,
0: yeah, that kind of and code everyone has too. the best
1: of intentions.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there are people out there who like genuinely don't care. So, the, oh, that's, that's true. true. Yeah, yeah, but like for the most part, people want to do a good job. I think that's generally too true, just in general.
1: I think the people who don't care. Um, okay, so. I think that the people who don't care most often it's not that they actually don't care. It's that their definition, what I what I often hear is the only thing that matters is the product works the way that it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um that that we're doing this, we're writing bad code in service of the business or the product being successful. And that's the only thing that matters.
0: Well, what do you say to this, Chad? What if somebody says to you, well, users don't
1: care about the code? Right. What's your response to that? Users do care about the software changing or being performant, uh, you know, to meet their needs. Um, That's what users care about. And if you continue down that path of producing non-quality code, you're going to put your use, it is going to affect your users eventually. So that's yeah. that's my response to that.
0: Well, you're two for two, Chad. Your answer to that question is the same exact one to mine. Because, like, <laughs> yes, of course the users aren't going to go open up an IDE and, and look at your code and have an opinion on right. that. But your code affects them, and they're, of course, going to care about that part.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. As long as we're on this topic of, like, common arguments in favor of writing bad code and their mm-hmm. refutations... Uh, I have another one like there's often basically it's the story of programming everywhere, which is we're under huge time pressure and we're like way behind where we want to be. And everything is like under um, under such pressure. And so people say things like, well, perfect is the enemy of good. Like it doesn't need to be perfect like we just need to get it done um yeah. what what would you say in response to that
1: i i shouldn't swear right <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i swear a
1: lot on this show Go oh, ahead. Okay, okay um i think people who say that are not writing good code so they're they're saying that but they're writing shitty code yeah so that that that's I think people who say that that's what people are actually doing, and they're using that as cover for that. I don't think people who are actually writing good code really say that because i because no one is striving well okay, when I write code, I'm not striving for it to be perfect because I recognize that perfect is essentially impossible, but I am not going to compromise on creating code. Which works. And at ThoughtBot, and and for myself, what we've done is say when we're faced with the scenario of like, this is hard. So, for example, doing test driven development is not easy, it's hard. And that's one of the reasons why people don't do it. When we were first starting out and doing test driven development, it was not a popular practice. You know, there are blog posts and people saying like, you shouldn't do test development. It's slow. We did it at my company and we went out of business. It was one of the blog posts I remember from back then. Like that kind of stuff um, inspired us to, instead of saying, well, then I guess we can't do it. It inspired us to say, no, we believe in this practice. So we have to uh, do a combination of make it easier which is why we created Shuda and Factory Bot and tools like that, so that we could do it faster because it was easier. But also, it inspired us to be really, really good at it, because and to be so good and so fast at it that no one could tell us not to do it. Hmm. And that's, that's just really my general approach key. to things: is like, oh, you believe that this is too hard, or 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 you shouldn't do it because because it's it's uh, slow or whatever. Well, then I'm going to get really fast at it. It's just my general way of uh, approaching problems like that, um, and I know that does not everyone does that, but uh, it's sort of what inspires me.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I can respect that. Um, getting back to the the perfect is the enemy of good and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, I've often heard that from non technical people. In fact, yeah. there's there's that book, uh, The Phoenix Project, and there was like that one one manager type person in the book. Right. And, and she said exactly that to the developer, perfect is the en- perfect is the enemy of the good as a way to say like, hey, hurry up. Don't don't spend right. all this time gold plating and all that stuff. Right. Um, and my response to that is that it's a false dichotomy. Like mm-hmm. the the normal choice developers are making is they're not choosing between doing an A plus job and doing a B plus job. They're right. choosing between doing a b job and a d job right again because of that time pressure and it's I, I hate to say it but a lot of the code that is produced in production is more toward the the d range of quality than the a plus of range of quality right. so the real danger in reality is usually not developers spending too much time making the code too good the danger is being too yeah. emphasizing the speed of development over the the quality Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. It's, it's almost another way of putting it as like, that's the kind of thing that you would say to someone about their work, not yours. Interesting. So like a a manager who's pushing the team in that way, what are they compromising on in their work where you would point to them and say, well, you're doing that too perfectly. It's <laughs> yeah. the enemy of of, of the good. You know, um, I've
0: wondered, this is, this is not very on topic, but I've wondered hmm. a, a couple times recently, Like one of the characteristics of programming is that our work is not judgeable by people who aren't programmers, and it's yeah. not very visible. And yeah. I wonder if in other disciplines, like civil engineering or mechanical engineering, something else that's similar, but the work is visible, I wonder how much... Those people's managers say things like "perfect is the enemy of good" because they can actually see the work. And if you design a some kind of a mechanism that is is crappy, uh, it's going to be like kind of obvious to everybody that it is, depending on what the thing is. So yeah. I would guess that in those other disciplines where their work is more visible and judgeable by other people, they don't get that kind of that kind of stuff too much.
1: Yeah, and and to your point. There, there definitely are times where even myself like spend two time too long trying to make something even better, right? So, but because the work is not visible, a manager or a business person or someone external is doesn't know the difference between when you're taking that long just because to do it like you in your, in your words like B level or A plus level. There's no, so. So you can get in a situation where you're pushing back against just sort of like fundamental levels of quality because you don't have that visibility into it and you don't know the difference between are they making it perfect or are they making it
0: good? That's very true. And you had brought up testing a minute ago and, and mm-hmm. test coverage is your second bullet point on this page here. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit because it's it's a particular challenge to add tests to a code base that doesn't have any tests or has very yeah. few tests for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe even the trickiest one. And and I'll let you speak to this because you certainly have more experience helping teams with this than I do. But if an, if a code base doesn't have any tests, it's not really as simple as just adding a bunch of tests and saying, there you go, it has tests now, make sure to like keep adding more tests usually there's a reason why it doesn't have any tests like those those skills aren't present on the team yet um and so my first question is like is that your experience too and then if so what kinds of things do you find you have to do to help help the team build those skills so so they continue to add tests after you are no longer involved
1: yeah, this is a really good point because we do get people, companies from time to time that come to us and say, you know, we don't have a good test suite. We don't have one at all. Um and now we think we need to add one. And especially if they have a significant size project, that could be months of work and hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially. And I told a lot of them like We can write tests. We can can write a lot of tests. We're good at writing tests. But if we don't solve the problem why you don't have tests in the first place, we'll be talking again in two years and you will be very unhappy. (laughs) Um, There's some other reason. And we've got to bring the team along or do training, that kind of thing along the way. So you're you're exactly right. And our goal is to make it so that um, we empower the companies that we work with to not you know, to, to be self-sufficient after they work with us. Um, test suite in particular is really easy to get out of date. So if you don't solve that problem, like it, it, the next day after we stop working, the test suite will break and then no no one will keep it up to date.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I'm just thinking of how frequently I break my own tests. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It takes constant attention. Right. Um, Okay, so I'd like to talk more about that part because like, sometimes I talk with people or I read things people have written on forums saying, like, I have this big application. We we developed it for two years with no tests. I've never done testing before. Now I'm trying to add tests to my application. And it's really hard, so what do I do? And something that I realized after thinking about This this question and seeing it over and over is that part of the reason that that's a really hard job is because you're learning two you're doing two really hard things at the same time and so the difficulty is multiplying your one of the hard things is you're learning how to do testing that's a hard thing to learn how to do testing right and then also you're trying to add tests to an existing application that's hard even for people who are really good at testing. And so what would you recommend to somebody who's in that position trying to do that really hard thing?
1: Yeah, and I I just, before, just as part of it, to to underscore why that's hard is that one of the benefits of testing is that it changes the way that you write code so that it's cleaner and better architected and less coupled together and, and that kind of thing. And so, when you're trying to add co- tests to existing code your code wasn't written that way to begin with and so pulling apart the pieces or making it so that you don't need to do 25 lines of test setup just to get your domain in a place where you can then run a test against it that kind of stuff is what makes that hard just so just, you know it's just sort of underscore that point so the so understanding that then leads us to the Answer, which is you actually need to fix those problems in order to make testing easier ultimately. Um, So, so by understanding what's making the tests hard um, pick what I recommend is pick one thing to try to make it, you know, that's making it hard and try to solve that problem. Don't actually necessarily focus on writing um, tests for, everything or to solve all of those problems solve one thing and then next time do another and do another and chip away at the problem um is really the only surefire and sustainable way to eventually like crack the whole boulder uh essentially like if you try to do it all too too much all at once it's going to be very difficult and you're probably going to give up
0: yeah and i've I've given a couple talks on this topic, and one of the things that I mentioned is that although it might seem logical to try to start with test coverage in the places of your application that are most valuable where you get the biggest return on investment for your testing efforts, that's actually probably the worst place to start because it'll be the most difficult. And instead, maybe you should actually start in the most trivial place of your application Mm -hmm. so you can establish a beachhead and kind of get a quick win under your belt, get um, get a little bit of momentum going, get some testing infrastructure. Because that's another whole thing. That's yeah. yeah. If if it if you don't have tests, that means you probably don't have a testing infrastructure, and that's non trivial because not only do you have to put the testing infrastructure there, you have to decide with your team what that testing infrastructure is going to be. Are are we going to, for example, are we going to use RSpec or Mini Test? Are we going to Exercise our JavaScript using Capybara, or are we going to bring Jasmine into the project? All these discussions need to happen because right. I've seen the other thing happen where one developer on the team just starts setting things up and they kind of leave the other developers behind. Or what's even right. better, I've seen this two developers on the team start <laughs> setting up infrastructure in parallel, and now you have two test suites, and that's like, that's not good.
1: I, I've seen uh i think a product where that happened and it stuck around so there was two significant test suites using different technology um that you had to run in order to run all of the tests it was pretty impressive
0: yeah yeah so dear listener don't do that
1: <laughs> yeah good advice
0: um yeah and another another thing which i would add is when you're trying to add test coverage to your application, maybe if you don't have the skills to, to do that level of testing yet, if you're just starting out with testing, maybe go and do like a Hello World Rails application or just like some mm-hmm. small application that doesn't matter and try to teach yourself testing on that and then come back to your main production application now that you've sharpened those skills a little bit. What do you think?
1: Yeah, and, and not to not to just plug Thoughtbot stuff, but Thoughtbot, we we have a, a course called test driven Rails. If you um and it's free, totally free, uh, at Thoughtbot.com slash upcase. And the that course is specifically it's an online video course. It's specifically meant for people who already know Rails and don't know testing. Yeah. And so it walks you through with a ThoughtBot developer building an application from scratch in a test-driven way. And it's, it's like I said, it's, it's meant for people who already know Rails. So that can be a really great resource as well uh, for people to check out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, for no good reason. I haven't checked that out yet myself, but that is on my list of things because I'm kind of, if not the Rails testing guy, I'm at least a Rails testing guy, so that's that's in my interest area. Yeah. Um, okay, so just looking at this list of bullet points a little bit more of um, of what you review, or actually even let me turn it over to you and ask, um, rather than me like dictating the details of, of what we go into, is there anything in particular that you think is like, what are some of the most important things when you When you assess a code base, or when somebody comes to you with help, or does it really just depend on the situation and the what the client is asking for?
1: Yeah, what we always want to do is have a conversation up front about what pain they feel they're actually having. And they could be totally wrong. <laughs> um, but but understanding what how they feel the pain, Um, and how it's manifesting them for themselves is important. Um, and so for example, like people might, someone might come to us and say like, our development team is too slow. Why, why is that? Let's, you know, um, and again, sort of on the same philosophy of like, assume best of intentions, (laughs) like they're probably not slow because they're slow they're probably slow because the code is difficult to change based you know on a myriad of decisions that have been made over the last 5 years or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Cuz if somebody comes to you and says our developers are slow, that's the symptom. It's right. certainly not the root cause and it's actually probably pretty distant from the root cause. Right.
1: Right. So understanding their perspective and 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 you know, what problem they think they have is important. And we take that into the review. Um, All reviews start the same way, which is running pretty basic tools and looking at things like opening the routes file and looking at the routes to give you a sense of what the domain is. And that's going to tell you, you know, two things right off the bat. If you're you're familiar with Rails, it's going to tell you, okay, are they architecting this restfully? Um, and if not, then that's a big sort of smell that we might be concerned about. Um, but also the routes file is a good place to look um, to just get a sense of the domain and what it looks like. Um, same thing like expanding app models and you know, app controllers and seeing what that looks like. You start at that high level of just getting an overview of what things look like. And one of the benefits of Rails is that Rails is actually rel- it's very standardized, you know, it's convention over configuration, and so if you see if you open the app models directory or you open the routes file and it doesn't look like convention, <laughs> then you know what you're in for. You start to know what you're in for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've that's always where said... all, all reviews all reviews start off right there. Okay.
0: Yeah, sometimes people ask me like what do you think of this code, like when I start working in a new place or something like that? Mm-hmm. And I, I always say that like, well, either the code is obviously really bad or it's not obviously really bad. Sometimes it's hard to tell and you have to work with it for a while before you know whether it's easy to work with or not. But right. sometimes if it's very low quality, it it just jumps right out at you. And I I do like that technique that you mentioned and I I picked that tip up from somewhere years ago. And so I often do that when I get a new project, I open up the routes file. And if things are just an absolute mess in there, then like you said, you know what you're in for, or if they're, they're clean, then you don't, you don't know that the project's going to be good, but you at least know it's not going to be a total train wreck probably.
1: Right. Right.
0: Okay. Another, another topic here that I see on your bullet points that's near and dear to my heart is this is no longer in the, code category it's under mm-hmm. your process category here and that thing is story quality now i have my ideas of of what that means but what do you think about when you think about story quality
1: so and i guess one, I'm, I'm sorry yeah. chad
0: we should even no, like okay. contextualize that more just to be yeah beginner friendly like when when we say story we're talking about like the Agile development methodology, a story, is like a, a task that you, that you set up for a developer to work on. That's not a great description, but just to contextualize that, we're talking about Agile development.
1: Yeah, and the reason why it's called a story is the way that they're typically written is something like, as a user, when I'm trying to do this, I want it to do this. Um, and sort of you know in words um, that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so a lot of teams, um, if you look at the and you uh, know, so a lot of teams come to us, and they're talking about the churn in their process. You know, the, so maybe they'll be doing two week iterations, and they'll be talking about how difficult it is for an idea to go from like the start of the idea to being shipped to customers. And then you look at their board and and project board and it's an absolute mess. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I don't know. I'm a big believer that like the, the things you see when you look at code or you look at a project board, when you look at the artifacts of our work, that's not the root cause. The root cause is always, those are artifacts of where the problem is. And so when it comes to like what your board looks like or what your stories look like, what you'll often see is the communication problems, or the uncertainty that's in the business or the organization, are reflected in that story, and that could be like lack of detail, um, lack of specificity, um, you know, or it could be like way over specifying, <laughs> um, wh- you know, not having clear business um, goals. So a lot of teams get in this cycle where they expect developers to just write out code and not be part of the process of figuring out what the product should even be. So that's another common problem is like way over specifying functionality um, exactly down to how it should work when, you know, individual developers were never part of the process of figuring that out. So that's one problem. So there's all these different kinds of problems that can manifest in story quality but they're all not actual like the actual problem is not the stories (laughs) the actual problem is some dysfunction in the communication or the organization that's causing that problem to happen
0: yeah that is such a great point because like if you look at a code base and the code is hard to work with Mm -hmm. it's probably not the case that the code is hard to work with but everything upstream of that is just great.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah, there's right. probably some, some issues with the process or, or the, something, something upstream of, of the code actually being written. Um, right. Just to maybe zoom in on one particular aspect of, of story quality that I've experienced, and you kind of mm-hmm. touched on this a little bit, but I've noticed a lot of times that stories lack crispness they're not mm-hmm. very sharply defined, and so you'll you'll have stories that say things like "implement reporting right and it's right. like okay, well, I can interpret that to mean quite a lot of different things, and how exactly do we know what that means when it's done and so i I think it's a really good idea to have each story itself have you you should have a way to know when it's done, and I like to I like to use the measure of like could somebody other than the person who wrote this story read the story and mm-hmm. know what they would need to like QA on this story in order to make a judgment right. as to whether it's done. So I, I think that's one important part is each story you should know when it's done. And then in general, you should have a definition for what does it mean for a story to be done? Like, does it mean that your, um, your, your, PR is reviewed and it's merged. Does it mean that that feature is deployed to production and verified in production to be, to be working? You should have some kind of definition, whatever it is across all stories. Um, Do you have a way of looking at that part? Like, do you, do you yourself when you, when the process is up to you, do you have a certain way of, of defining when a story is done?
1: Yeah. When it's in production. Mm -hmm. So, and this is actually, you're really, um, you know, you're, you're, you've identified one of the, the the things that we'll often uncover is that people have on the team have a different definition of done. And that's the source of some of the problems that some people will think that they're done when the code has been merged. And some people think that it's done when it's in production and that, They've never made that explicit, and so it causes a bunch of miscommunication or missed expectations about how things are going to go.
0: Mm, yeah. What well, What about story size? How do you
1: think about that? So, th- let's take your example of the like implement reporting. So that's not a story. That is an idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and actually, we, we make this pretty explicit. So our normal board, the first column on the all the way over to the left is called ideas. So that's where things start almost always. And so things get created as an idea and they don't need, you know, explicit acceptance criteria and that kind of thing up front. Like it's an idea and someone can have an idea it can be a crazy idea. It could be a really simple idea. It could be a big thing. It could be, you know, it could be anything, but it goes in that ideas column first and then it gets worked on. And, you know, it, it's, we've 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 been doing a similar process. Basecamp has been talking about this a little bit. They call it shaping. Just the concept of like shaping the idea. And that's going to be a, a collaborative process typically of getting to the point where that, card might actually be broken down into you know 30 stories and that's where the sizing comes in like i sort of am um on a well-functioning very well-flowing project i believe that no task really is going to take longer than a day and if you find that that a lot of your tasks are actually taking longer than that. Then you probably have the you either don't aren't shaping things or aren't taking your ideas and um, getting to the the point where they can be broken down into discrete shippable chunks that are small enough to achieve, or or you you know you're making the chunks too big. So one smell in that will be if the chunks you if the stories you're working on have big checklists like to-do lists on them of all the things that need to be done for that really take a look at that and and say could i make a story out of each one of these things and ship it more incrementally yeah for example.
0: yeah i i think a lot of people would find your your idea of how big a story should be shocking i think they would consider a day to be like shockingly small but that mm. is that's right around where I like stories to be, too. I've, I've thought for a long time that stories should be, like, no more than, like, two or three days. I've worked mm-hmm. on teams where they think it's acceptable. Like, if you're working in two-week cycles, then if it's a story that takes about a week and a half, then, then that's right. okay because it's less than the cycle time. But really, that's, like, that's too long. And what happens in reality is that that story ends up getting kicked down the road sprint after sprint and that's a bad place to be where you have a story that that spans multiple sprints because then that gives you a chance to like forget what it's all about it it gives you a chance to uh add it, it gives a chance to make the change really big which and this is another reason why it's helpful to have small stories is that the smaller a change is the easier it is to do a PR review on that change, yep. the less likely it's gonna be to to introduce a bug in production or some kind of problem when you deploy it. it just makes yep. everything so much easier.
1: Yep. Now there are certainly cases where an individual feature, especially for, for marketing purposes, you wanna launch it all together, right? But that's not a, an excuse. To not break it down and work on it incrementally and ship everything to master and to production in it in a ongoing you know hour by hour or day by day basis and then because because that's a good problem to have oh we're we're too quick so this feature is not fully <laughs> ready to show people yet right that's a separate problem to solve you wrap you wrap that all in a feature flag or something like that to to make it so that for marketing purposes or for cons- for for customer consumption purposes, you can release that to them when you're ready to do it.
0: That's a great segue into what I was about to ask. And I think this will be my, my last area of questioning for our conversation. And then we'll move on to where can people find you online and all yeah. of that stuff. Um, but all of these practices are inextricably linked. Your development practices are tied up with your code quality and your git practices and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and I, i do want to ask you about git and branching and all that kind of stuff how do you tend to to work with git in terms of like when you start working on a story do you create a branch for that story then merge it back in and do a pr review and all that or how does that typically go for you
1: Yeah, so our process at ThoughtBot is we make a branch um, off of master. Uh, We do our work. uh, We put up a GitHub pull request. Um, We get it reviewed by at least one other peer. um, And then it gets squashed and rebased and merged into master. Okay. And And then deployed to staging where then it gets reviewed on staging usually we call that acceptance testing and then goes to production and the individual developer who worked on that is driving that whole process forward including deploying to production
0: okay and what is that whole cycle time typically like from the time that the story begins work to the time it's in production
1: well it varies on the story but like i said i you know we try to have everything take less than a day yeah so um, but it will typically for an individual pull request, um, it's happening, you know, in depends on the side, but, you know, 45 minutes, three hours, you know, six hours that, that kind of cycle time on that process. Okay. And this
0: question, which will probably be my very last ties back into the the feature flag thing and and maybe we can even like explain what a feature flag is exactly but Mm -hmm. one one argument that i hear or complaint that i hear um so i have like kind of a beef with the git flow branching model which i've used Uh in some places i've worked and i find that it's a lot of overhead, and I, I prefer just having, brand, uh, having master and branching off of master and merging directly in, because it's, right. yeah. it's a lot harder to get yourself into a tangled mess when you do that. Um, but one argument that I hear is like, well, what if our release cycle is like once a week or something, but we have this feature that's just, it's genuinely a big, large thing, and it's going to take a month. There's no way to take, make it take less than a month. We can't release it in a partially done state. So, like, we we can't do that branching off and branching back every day or so because we need to work on this thing for a month. And I know what my answer to this is. It's the same <laughs> as your answer, but how You probably how you... have the same answer. Yeah. yeah,
1: you know, generally, it doesn't work for every feature, but but generally, the concept of a, a feature flag is, is is the sort of concept we use to solve this problem. So that is some way of making that thing that you're working on in be in master in production, but not visible to customers. And you know, the exact way to do that depends on, um, what the actual thing is. And it's not always possible, but in most cases it's possible. And there's even, there's a gem that we use to do this a lot. It's called rollout. Um, which allows you to do that. You can also just make an environment variable, and you, you, you say, check, you know, wrap the code that's doing this in this environment variable. If it's set, um, then don't do this or don't show this to this customer. And there's a few, you know, there's lots of different ways to to do it. Um, the way that I like to do it is, you know, be thinking about it up front. Like, what is the right way? We're, you know, given the what this feature is or how it's going to do. What's the right way to um, make sure that it's not visible? Yeah. The reality is, though, Jason, what I find Mm -hmm. is that when you get better and better at this, the number of times where you realize it or where you think something is just going to take a month and that's just the way that it is and all that kind of stuff goes down over time. If yeah, a team gets better and better too. at breaking down their work and doing feature flags and like the number of times where you need feature flags starts to go down. Um, if, if, if the problem was that stuff was taking too long. Very
0: true. Um, well, Chad, this conversation has been super helpful and I'm sure that the listeners have have learned a lot from our conversation. Where can people go to find you online? to find more about Thoughtbot and the code audit, code audit service.
1: Yeah. Um, you can go to thoughtbot.com T H O U G H T B O T.com. Um, our blog is how a lot of people know about us too. That's giant robots smashing other giant robots. And, um, you can get that at thoughtbot.com slash blog. Um, what was the other question? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at CPytel, C P Y T E L. Um, we have a technical podcast as well. It's called the Bike Shed. Is that Bike Does it cover everything? I think so, and we'll make
0: sure to put all that stuff in the in the show notes. Chad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh,
1: thanks for having me. It's been a blast.